This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. On today's episode, got a lot of news. We're, it's definitely a news-heavy episode here. Number one, we're going to talk about the new Stripe Climate initi- Initiative, so they're offering businesses a chance to give back a percentage of their revenue to fight climate change. So pretty cool. We're going to talk about GE turning a profit for the first time since 2018. Vestas buying out MHI's stake um, to kind of run their own or the entirety of their offshore segment. Some changes in Visala and a very interesting Danish study on birds and wind turbine collisions. Secondly, in our engineering segment, we're going to chat a little bit about uh, vibration, so vibration sensors and what that means for the industry and how this technology, um, you know, can effectively keep wind turbines running longer. So, Alan, let's start with Stripe Climate. So, new initiative they're rolling out. Stripe has basically pledged a million dollars to a couple of different charities and or that they're investing in, essentially. And uh, they've invited other companies via their Stripe Climate tool to choose whatever percentage that they want. So if you're checking out with, you know, company X, company X can say, Hey, you know, 1% of your, your transaction to us is going to stripe climate, which will help fight climate change. So what are your, what are your thoughts as you, you hear about this for the first time? I, I don't have a lot of, uh, so much opinion about it. It's just trying to put it all in perspective and a lot of the green initiatives i think need to be taken with a grain of salt in terms of donations there are a lot of worries in the world right now with uh, obviously coronavirus being way up at the top and the lack of of employment for a lot of people and other things of that sort uh housing poverty you name it so donations for Mm -hmm. carbon sequestration which is what it is i mean carbon capture technology and reusing uh, carbon in different ways or burying it somehow are interesting technologies, but where does it rank? And I think this is one of the, the issues that the, the the climate change organizations have had over the last 12 months is that if you look at the list of priorities, the top 10 in terms of, mm-hmm. of uh, you know what they rank as issues, climate change is not typically in the top 10. It's way down, and it goes to, I think, uh, part of the issue, which is uh, we have the ability to make really big, impactful changes to the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the air. Given enough time, humans have been pretty good at fixing large problems. Just We just need time to do that, and that's where... Uh, little initiatives can turn into bigger initiatives. So I applaud them for, for making, you know, reasonable donations to organizations that are or companies that can, they're looking at carbon capture and carbon reduction techniques, carbon dioxide reduction techniques, 
burning less uh, hydrocarbons, those sort of things. Those are all, all great. Uh, but in terms of the big picture right now, I'm not sure how that plays. So this is why a lot of those things don't seem so, a lot of these uh, donation sites don't seem so active right now. Plus we're in the middle, middle of a campaign in the United States and who knows how that's going to turn out. But, uh, you know, I think there's just yeah. a grain of salt here. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. You know, I think it's good. And obviously everyone has their own, you know, places they want to donate money. Some people are super passionate about the about the climate yeah. or the planet. Yeah. Other people, you know, like I know at the grocery store, you can round up for St. Jude, which is an exceptional charity, yeah. right? Like there's lots of different places you can give your yeah. money. So, you know, if they're a- a- adding a new option, great. I kind of uh, side with you there that I think if I was going to round up or you know, give a dollar here or there, I'd probably want it to go to something that's more social work mm-hmm. rather than, you know, climate change personally. Yeah. But that, again, that's just yeah. me. You know, everyone gets to pick and choose yeah. and it's your money and your donation. Right. But you're right. It's, I think it's a good step in the right direction because I know Patagonia has been one of those companies that does uh, the 1% for the environment. Right. I'm not super tuned into that charity, but Patagonia has always given back some of their uh, their profits to, you know, because they, they really do kind of stand by their commitment to, the planet so yeah. anyway yeah good interesting little technology yeah. i think you're right there's lots of different places to put your money but uh good job stripe for going in the right direction yeah. so ge in other news has turned its first uh quarterly profits uh, they made five million dollars in quarter three woo-hoo! which five million dollars is like a kleenex <laughs> yeah but that's a pretty big uh pretty big change from losing 98 million dollars in q3 last year yeah. so that's a hundred you know, $3 million swing. So they said they've been cutting costs and, um, you know, improving their pricing and stuff like that, especially in their on shore sector. Yeah. So you're a big, you're a big American, uh, <laughs> you know, industrial <laughs> champion. So how does this make you feel? Mormon, Mormon well, fuzzy? Well, I used I to work for GE, right? So uh, yeah, GE is a, has been a really historically very, uh, a powerful company in the United States, if not the world, just because of all the technology they bring to bear and the the industrial might they would bring to bear and uh, the engineering capability, which they've had for 100 plus years. So yeah, it's good that they're starting to settle out a little bit. I think the issue for GE and a lot of the wind turbine makers right now is how stable is this marketplace going to be over the next six to 12 months? And, that, and how much consolidation is there going to be? And how are you going to minimize cost impacts and still deliver because the technology push is more towards larger wind turbines and larger wind turbines take more investment, particularly upfront engineering mm-hmm. investment. So you're always scared about the risk reward of, I'm going to put a hundred million dollars or plus into a new design. And I'm not sure if that marketplace is going to materialize. Like I think that it will, there's your risk, right? And, and one misstep in a, in a sort of a GE situation right now can be significantly impactful later on. So they can't miss. So everything they're going to do from the next year or two is going to have to have almost guaranteed marketplace sales before they go do it. And unless they can guarantee it, you're going to see them push off on any sort of technology advancements, so to speak. They're going to go for the th- to the items that pay cash and and rightly so because everybody's going to be in the same boat which is cash 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 make sure that we're productive and make sure that we're our income receipts are greater than our outgoing receipts (laughs) and and it, it makes you more efficient temporarily it does but these periods of time in in human development 
slow down innovation typically because there's not a lot of excess innovation, excess cash uh, to go, do, or just too much risk, downside risk to 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 put to bet the company on. So good for GE. You know, I think I think we need them around. <laughs> hopefully for a lot longer. And if you're you know if you're a stock investor in GE, then uh, happy days. Is it says the stock really increased mm-hmm. significantly, Dan? I've been kind of watching it on and off. It hasn't really jumped a lot. You know, it's not at fifty. It's it's below ten still, I think, right? Well, GE overall is at seven forty two yeah. as of this exact moment in time. Yeah. And of course this is just the the renewable energy right. sector, GE renewable right. energy that's turned a profit. So as far as the overall health of the business, uh, haven't done enough digging to really comment on there today, but yeah, I mean, that's at least a, a good turn in the right direction mm-hmm. for that sector. Obviously, GE did just roll out that massive jet turbine engine that we chatted yeah. about, right? The world's biggest, yep. just insane thrust, and <laughs> that thing's impressive. So, I mean, the technology's still there. So, hopefully, there's continue to go in the right yeah. direction. But speaking of speaking of technology, uh, so Vestas has been, they bought out um, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, from their partnership for offshore wind. So now Vestas will forge ahead as pretty much the sole uh, entity there. Now MHI has bought out a two and a half percent stake and I think they get a board seat. So they're gonna still sort of like be there with them. Uh, but you know, Vestas is going it alone from this point. And one of the things that their CEO mentioned in a recent Wind Power Monthly article is that they want to scale up and sort of catch. now. Uh, you know, GE and Siemens Gamesa as far as the output of their biggest turbine. So Vestas right now is at 10 megawatts. Siemens Gamesa has the 14 megawatt and GE just scaled up their 12 megawatt Halliades at 13 megawatts. So Vestas knows they need to catch up there. Of course, they still are the market leader. You know, they have about, it looks like as of 2018, 20% of the market today. Right. I don't know the exact number as of this moment, but that's about double. It's double double GE and a little less than double of uh, Siemens Gamesa's like twelve ish yeah. percent market yep. share. So, what are your what are your thoughts on on this uh, withdrawal from the par- partnership? Here? Well, I I think it was set up that way from the very beginning, and that's what my impression was is that that was never going to be a long term partnership. And just the way it was established and when it was established, it was more of hey, we both had capabilities, and if we could merge these things together, we could then have more capability to grow offshore wind which is what the play was mm-hmm. and mitsubishi has huge capabilities it's a gigantic conglomerate of a company and it has all kinds of divisions much similar it's very similar to like a ge you know they're involved in everything yeah so having that on the other side of the world compared to uh european-based vestas uh makes you know you got you got sort of two manufacturing operations going on simultaneously and and so it brings a lot of weight to bear especially since a large Part of the wind market is in China. You, you can play that marketplace a little bit, but at the end of the day, I think the tax accountants sat around and the lawyers sat around and said, "Hey, guys, we can't. We can be much more efficient as a single entity, probably, and consolidate it into one organization." And because you're right, I think you're right. Investors is seeing that. The GEs and the Siemens Gamesas of the world are driving to larger and larger wind turbines. Vestas has got to be up in that marketplace. And because they have a larger market share, you don't want to lose out yeah. in, the, in the future marketplace. They have to go there. And this is a place where you don't really want to put, again, because the, the costs are, for larger wind turbines are so massive, you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss. You don't mm-hmm. want to lose market share. So they, they, 
they're, they're in this really funny pinch area where they've got to uh, build larger wind turbines and retain their market position to keep ahead of everybody else. That involves cash, and you're not in a really great place to go get cash today. So consolidation would make sense, I think. And we'll see what happens in six months from now. Aren't you hoping? And it doesn't it sound like they have a couple of things on the drawing board, some geared tur- geared um, turbines that are set up, and that th- that there's a yeah. They sound like they've got something in the cooking, works right? as far as their 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 tech. Yeah. yeah, and I would guess that you know. It, you don't really catch up in this position. You just try to leapfrog. So I would guess that they're probably <laughs> whatever's on their drawing board is not 14 megawatts. It's got to be probably 15, 16, 20 or 17. Come on, right? 20. Well, because if it takes th- three years to develop five years, yeah. to, I don't know how long these things take to develop, wow. but they've got to know like, this is where we got to go. Like we can't, you know, <laughs> why would we develop 2020s turbine? Like Stevens Gamesa already did right. that. So right. if this is going to be a, a new rollout in 2024, for example, it's got to be bigger. It has to be. So, so the rotor's got to get bigger, right? Know. The blades have to get bigger. Everything has to get bigger. It has to get heat. They'll just have one. They'll just have one wind turbine. <laughs> it'll just be. It'll block out. Block out the sun. Be met with tons of activists. Yeah, because it'll block out a large portion of the sun. Somewhere in Missouri, like there's a town that just no longer gets to have daylight because Vesta just has one turbine, 185 megawatts. <laughs> just gigantic oh, that's where- something mr burns something mr burns would build in the simpsons <laughs> what they're gonna do that's my my nonsensical prediction but no i'm sure they're gonna try to leapfrog that's that's i think the sensible choice if the technology's there oh, yeah. so and, and and of course at some point it's probably not going to be a hardware mechanical upgrade maybe it's just you know they're trying to squeeze little extra bits of juice out without because there is going to be a point right we can't I mean, how big can they get before it gets just? I don't know. Logistically ridiculous. That's that's a that's a really know. good question. It's a good we question. haven't gotten there yet, have we? And I've only seen mm-hmm. bits and pieces because there's been a lot of conjecture of where's that boundary, right? How it's sort of like the discussion back in the '40s: yeah. can we break the sound barrier, and how fast can we really go? We don't even know. We have, obviously there's more technology, yeah. and breaking the sound barrier was a big deal back in the '40s, but. You know, we're going eight times, ten times that right now in terms of speed. And we never really would have guessed that in the 1950s or 60s. We never would have guessed that. But here we are. So, who knows? Yeah. Well, it seems like it's going to get become asymptotic at some point, right? Like with yeah. skyscrapers, they keep outdoing each other. But it's not like someone's throwing 50 extra stories on the next biggest skyscraper. No. You know, it seems like it's just become such an engineering nightmare to get that much higher. And the the question is, like, well, for what good? Like, that's just let's just make two, make two. two towers. Right. Rather right. than, yeah, one that's, you know, 8,000 feet in the air. Right, so, which is the answer, right? Because all the... Yeah, yeah. at what point do you mm-hmm. make it one big one or two medium-sized ones? And what's the cost straight off? Because there's plenty of there's plenty of room in the ocean. Yeah, like you don't need <laughs> a gigantic thing no. where you can just like, look, let's just space them out. Like 15 megawatts is fine. I mean, that's probably a discussion that's, I'm sure, been, been had. Oh, yeah, I, I think it has. Interesting think, to think about what's... Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of costs on like the cables that feed back to shore and all those all those little bits you don't think about so much add up to a lot of costs. And then, you, you know, when you find that sweet spot, I'm sure there's a lot of computers with a lot of spreadsheets that are trying to calculate this and figure out where that sweet spot is based on the, what the price of the mm-hmm. turbine is, right? And the, the, the turbine manufacturers are also doing those calculations and trying to figure out how, what they can get, what the pricing they can get for a turbine is because they're doing the same calculations. So um, if there's a if there's a cash advantage to building a, little, a bigger turbine and the operator's willing to pay it because you see the payoff is just less maintenance or whatever that could be, 
then the turbine manufacturers are definitely going to go larger, right? Everybody's looking at the same spreadsheets. They're going to get to roughly the same answers. It isn't like there's a hundred people working on a hundred spreadsheets are getting wildly varying answers. I don't think that's the case at all. I think they, they pretty well know where sweet spots are. So moving on to Visala, their GLD 360 technology, you know, their, you know, industry leading lightning detection, uh, used to be five to 10 kilometers. Recently, it's been upgraded down to two to like one and a half kilometers. And today, they, or recently, they've said that their 4.0, their software, will deliver one kilometer median location accuracy. Mm -hmm. So how big of a, of a deal is this, you lightning nerd, you? <laughs> well, accuracy is everything. It doesn't, 10 kilometers is in America talk is six miles. So six miles is a long ways, right? If you're up by six yeah, miles, right? If you're trying to look to see if lightning has struck your wind turbine somewhere and you are and you have data that's off by six miles, I would say that would be a problem. Uh, yeah, yeah, and if you look at, at the data today, you'll, you'll if you look at wind turbine locations and lightning strike locations, you'll see like, huh, they don't seem to be hitting the light, hitting the wind turbines, but they must be. Come on. I mean, they can't miss it by 100 yeah. yards. I, I doubt that's the case, right? So you just aggregate them all into the wind, on top of the wind turbines. You just immediately do that because otherwise it doesn't, the data doesn't make any sense. So uh, the interesting mm -hmm. thing about this uh, press release is it says it's all done by software. <laughs> that was that's the that's the fix or the improvement is the software fix. Like wow, okay. So what is a software fix? What it, what are they doing on the software side? Are they taking into account geography and height of objects around there to uh, to better position where lightning is lightly striking? Like if I have a radio tower out in the middle of Iowa, and that radio tower is a couple hundred feet up, I should be able to tell that most of the lightning strikes around that area are hitting that tower. And then I can adjust my software yeah. accordingly to correct it, right? So you should be able to get some mm -hmm. data off that with those known fixed points and then software being what it is to correct the, correct the data and provide more accurate data, which is what everybody's looking for. And which, again, which customers are willing to pay for. So they are only doing it because customers are willing to pay for it for more accurate data. And rightly so, you do want more accurate data. So it's a it's a good step into uh, providing more lightning knowledge on, on all kinds of things, not just wind turbines and buildings and houses and all kinds of features. Yeah. So speaking of data, a new Danish research study that just came out uh, shows that almost no birds it's the headline here from reneweconomy.com, which is the Australian site, die in collisions with wind turbines. So basically, what, hundreds of thousands of cranes and what's the other type of bird here? They uh, of, a, of a pink footed goose were tracked via radar in this study. And they found only what in the first year, 17 dead birds. And this, in the third year, um, About the same. only 22. Yeah. yeah so a really like a fraction of the hundreds of thousands of back and forth Flights. i guess they did as they're migrating yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, so what does this study mean to you i, I think i think it, it explains the obvious which that which that birds are not flying into the turbine towers the cells or blades the the birds that were f found deceased on the ground uh 
didn't look like they actually had impacted the turbine, nor did they see any marks on the turbine. So that's a good indication there's mm-hmm. not been a collision. That that birds have eyeballs, and they can probably tell what to fly around. And the radar, the radar data, which I think is fascinating. If you, if you have a chance to look at the article that provides a little image of the wind, yeah. where the wind turbines are, we'll put it in the show. Yeah, notes. and where the birds are going around. <laughs> so birds are intelligent creatures, right? That's how they live as long as they do. So they're flying around the wind turbines, especially if it's a, a, a it's a constant. If you've been around them a little bit as a bird, you you fly around a lot of different areas. I'm sure because it's not safe. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. So they're flying around the wind turbines, but the the conclusion they make doesn't really jive with the data they gave. So the the conclusion is well, they're, they're flying a lot of flights, but they're not. Uh, the birds are not running into them. That's not the failure mode here for the birds. The birds are, and bats in the United States in particular seem to be dying from the pressure changes. So if the if the birds and bats are flying around the back ends of the wind turbines, there's some pretty severe pressure changes that occur on the backside of these blades. And that those pressure changes basically take their little lungs and just implode them or explode them a little bit and cause a lot wow. of tissue damage and explodes all the blood vessels is what it sounds like inside their lungs and they just die and and that that's not that's a really gruesome way to describe it but that's the impression i get is that it's the pressure changes that are causing the most death so it's not that they're flying and hitting them it's they're getting too close to the blade so as as the creatures get bigger and geese and and cranes tend to be larger birds they're probably a little more resilient Mm -hmm. to the little tiny creatures like bats which are very fragile if they get around it, they're going to have more trouble. And I think this is where that a couple of episodes ago we were talking about painting one of the blades black seemed to make a big difference on yeah. maybe just keeping the, the animals further away. Cause that must be the, the the kicker here is that it's a proximity thing. And I, I think you, you, you run into that effect because you live in Washington, D.C. And I think I, I, the, the one thing about Washington, D.C. it always really throws you off is. Yeah, I, I run into buildings all the time. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. You, can't, you, can't, you don't have perspective. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen the Washington Monument on the mall and go, oh, it's not that far? And start walking towards it. And then an hour later, you're still kind of walking towards it. Your sense of perspective is all off. And I think. That, yeah. that will do it to most animals. You, your depth perception, especially for things that are straight in front of you, is really, really poor. <laughs> this is why baseball is such a hard game. Uh, anything you're, you're having to look at straight ahead and try to get depth perception on can be very difficult, especially if it's if it's large. So it's not in perspective of anything else. It doesn't have anything else to, to reference it to. So I'm guessing that um, the, the black blade gives you that contrast where like, okay, there it is over there. I don't want to get close to it, and therefore decreasing uh, bird and bat deaths, which which w- would make sense. So m- maybe it's a just a depth perception, visibility thing that's playing into it. Not so much that they're running into the wind turbines as much as that they they need a little more perception, and we can give them that. Yeah. Well. Well, and it's it's good to have studies like this because again, like a lot of the advocates against wind power are probably just going from the heart, and they're like, look. We love animals, which we all love animals. Yeah. But they're like, you know, this is this is harming the wildlife where it's good just to have some data. We're like, look, we know you yeah. you maybe feel that way, but the data doesn't support that. Like more birds are probably getting eaten by foxes or falcons, <laughs> you know, than than these winter. I yeah, mean, it's true, relatively speaking. Bird deaths yeah. in a year, yeah. 20 bird deaths in a year, like more, more are going to die from some predator. Probably, yeah. Without a yeah. doubt. 
you know, by snakes, any yeah. of it. So <laughs> it just puts it in perspective. Like, I think that's reasonable if this is a, another low level predator at best that's introduced to their environment. I mean, that's something they can cope with for the probably greater good of the planet. Yeah, yeah. true. So in our engineering segment today, we're going to talk a little bit about vibration. So Alan, you've, uh, we're going to jump right into this, but vibration sensors on wind turbines are especially helpful for gearboxes. Obviously as bearings start to wear out over time, just, just knowing that, Hey, this is making a weird, like we all, we all have, <laughs> this is making a weird sound, you know, in our, whether it's our microwave or our car or our refrigerator that's a pretty like it, it's actually when you really think about it how many things in your life could you say that this is making a weird sound maybe we should check on it maybe i should call a mechanic or whatever <laughs> so it's actually it, it's funny how common this is now that i think about it yeah. out loud right here on yeah. the air but uh so obviously this technology is important for wind turbines which need to just be running all the time without you know without fail so tell me a little bit about uh vibration sensor technology because you've obviously they use this a lot in your other area of expertise which is the aerospace sector Sure, and, and in aerospace we use vibration sensors quite a bit particularly on helicopters because they're just shaking rattling machines and mm-hmm. uh, things break in a helicopter they don't glide very well so you want to have some early detection of mechanical failures and one way you do that is you just sense the vibrations that are going on inside the helicopter and if you see frequency changes or amplitude changes something abnormal they get squawked early and and caught and have maintenance crews go out and look and in fact some of those helicopter systems are very diagnostic and that they're predictive that they can say that vibration is caused by that gearbox or that vibration is caused by that piece of equipment you need to go check on that pump because that pump's going bad now that is a really beneficial help because it reduces the amount of time on the repair side but also provides data back to the operator to you know to catch it before it really goes bad so it's a benefit on all Mm -hmm. sides on the wind turbine side you don't see it so much and I think there's a again as we get larger and larger turbines, you're going to see more of these systems get put onto the onto the turbines because they they're predictive in a sense. If you have a good baseline of what the vibration signature is for the turbine, as it changes over time, you can then start assigning vibration frequencies and vibration amplitudes, particular failures, and start applying that across your fleet so that you can have predictive uh, failures. So you know that that vibration, when it gets to that amplitude, is that pump. So if I have that mm-hmm. same vibration, but it's at lower amplitude, maybe I need to send a technician out there to take a look at it before it fails. Right. And so it, it yeah. can be very, very predictive and you can actually lower your overall operational costs by doing that. Now, the problem is, is that with data overload. Right. And I think this is the, the real kicker to all of it is that as you instrument, 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 you have to have some way of processing, processing, processing. And the way that it has historically been done is that you put a person in front of a computer and you have them watch it on some level, watch it. So you start looking at patterns, frequency domain stuff, time domain patterns, and saying, yeah, okay, that, that is associated with this. And so you have a human in your control loop. And what you want to do is get the human out of the control loop and, and then let the computers do all the hard work for you and just tell you when you need to go out and take a look at it. So the, the reluctancy mm-hmm. on the aircraft side, 
except on power plants, right? So, so the engines on aircraft have basically vibration monitors and helicopters have a lot of vibration monitors. But like if I bought a little tiny airplane, I would not have any vibration monitors. So if I bought a single engine Cessna, for example, that's a piston powered airplane, you know, internal combustion engine, there's really no vibration monitoring equipment on those things at all because relative to the cost and doesn't make sense. Whereas if I'm flying in a Boeing 777, Airbus A320, I probably want to put some vibration sensors on there. So as the wind mm-hmm. turbines go up in cost and, and expense, you're going to see more of the technology go in. But you, it also comes with knowing what equipment is on that turbine and what its characteristics and what it looks like in the vibration world and uh, in the data sense of what it looks like when it's working, when it looks like when it's not working, and then have that stuck on a computer somewhere. So it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, that's what's yeah, that's what's really interesting. This this article by electronicdesign.com is really in depth. Mm-hmm. And they're just talking about all the different, you know, speeds. So like the gearbox has a low speed rotor shaft and a, a main bearing and a, and higher speeds and there's planetary gears. So just like with all this stuff, you know, there's transfer of power from one gear to the yep. next, you know, higher speed, lower yep. speed. So they're all going to have their own unique whine. Yes. You know, different hertz level and so, but that is really fascinating. You think about the best mechanics, you know, they've been doing it long enough. They just like put their ear to the ground when you're running your car and they're like, oh yeah, it's probably this. You're like, how do you know that? Where they just, they just know, right? But obviously this is going to be too many low frequency, unique signatures. Well, it's, yeah. Where, like you said, you need a lot of algorithms and, Filtering. and probably machine learning and AI. Yeah. I'm just throwing out buzzwords right no, now. No, no, no. That's exactly what it <laughs> and, is. Uh, but it's exactly what it is, though. Like mm-hmm. a mechanic. To just say. Yeah. yeah. So the mechanic likes to take what they usually do is to put a wrench to the engine block and then put their head against the wrench. What they are doing is transferring the vibrations from the engine to their head, right? So you can get a sense of frequency. You can get a sense of amplitude by doing that. And then their mm-hmm. little computer, which is their brain, is telling them what operates at those frequencies that could be bad in that engine. That's how they know. That's how you detect if you've got bad valves or lifters or things like that. You hear the clicking and <laughs> things go on. So humans are very good at detecting variations in frequency and amplitude. That's just even just feeling it, but auditory hearing it is really sensitive in humans. And so you can immediately tell, like if you're flying in an airplane and you hear a pitch change on an engine, you ever notice how people start looking around a little bit? <laughs> you are set up to monitor for changes. That's yeah. what you're set up for because changes mean can mean danger. And that's how your brain sort of organizes itself. Steady state is good. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. 
We'll get your uptime back in no time.